This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So throughout medicine's most recent history, we've pretty much followed one rule of thinking when it comes to treatment. Have disease, take pill, kill something. That's right. This is Siddhartha Mukherjee. I am a cancer biologist, a gen- cancer geneticist. I run a laboratory on stem cells. I treat cancer, um, and I write books about cancer and the history of cancer. So you're like the Lin-Manuel Miranda of medicine. <laughs> I like the title. <laughs> Do you expect me to rap? So anyway, that model of... Disease, target, kill. Which is basically identifying what's bad in your body and then getting rid of it was made possible by the invention of antibiotics. Absolutely, and there's a lock and key quality to the antibiotic revolution that was so seductive and so tantalizing. So, you know, you have a bacterium, the bacterium expresses one protein or some product, and the antibiotic, the chemical, latches onto that like a lock and key and really turns it off like a car's ignition engine being turned off. What a seductive, what a tantalizing Mm. idea in medicine. Let's put some chemical and pharmacological background to this. Okay. It's easier to design a molecule that will lodge into a body's protein and shut it off. Hmm. It's much harder to create a molecule that will lodge into a protein and turn it on. And that's a, it's a fundamental feature of biology that inactivating things, you know, throwing a spanner in the works is easier yeah. than making a cog work from scratch again. So the, like, the approach to medicine has been that, like throwing a spanner or a wrench in, into the cog and stopping it from moving at least temporarily, right? That's right. And one of the things in medicine, which is an important thing to realize, is that we have be- made better and better spanners, finer and finer spanners that we're throwing into the works. But this model, disease, target, kill, it doesn't work on everything. And it's just a limited example of what medicine could actually do in the future. Here's Siddhartha Mukherjee on the TED stage. We've really spent the last 100 years trying to replicate that model over and over again in non-infectious diseases and chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension and heart disease. And it's worked but it's only worked partly. You know, if you take the entire universe of all chemical reactions in the human body, most people think that that number is on the order of a million. Let's call it a million. And now you ask the question, what number or fraction of reactions can actually be targeted by the entire pharmacopoeia, all of medicinal chemistry? That number is 250. The rest is chemical darkness. In other words, 0.025% of all chemical reactions in your body are actually targetable by this lock and key mechanism. You know, if you think about human physiology as a vast global telephone network with interacting nodes and interacting pieces, then all of our medicinal chemistry is operating on one tiny corner at the edge, the outer edge of that network. It's like all of our pharmaceutical chemistry is a pole operator in Wichita, Kansas, who's tinkering with about 10 or 15 telephone lines. So what do we do about this idea? What if we reorganized this approach? On the show today, ideas about rethinking medicine exploring new ways we can treat diseases, transforming how we understand the human body and improving and hopefully even saving lives. And for Siddhartha Mukherjee, rethinking medicine means rethinking the way our bodies heal. Siddhartha says we need to move away from what he calls a going down model to building up. The going down model is disease, target, kill. 
you know, pneumonia, bacterium, antibiotic. The building up model is to start from base up and say, what's the environment that the organism lives in? What's the cellular or physiological environment that the organism inhabits? And what are the connections between cells that sustain normal physiological interactions in life? Look at vaccination. Mm -hmm. Vaccination is a profoundly successful medical intervention, but it does not belong to the have disease Where's the target? Right, Let's of kill course. Something. It's, it's pre preventive from happening. It's preventive yeah. and it builds up. It builds the immune system up. It builds up your capacity to reject a pathogen such as human papillomavirus, which causes cervical cancer or um, influenza virus. So this is just to remind us that outside this um, disease target kill model, there's a whole universe of regenerative medicine, nutritional medicine, preventative medicine, a model of creating health from the ground up. So in other words, it's not just about thinking, for example, with cancer of the precise tumor that you are targeting, which you would continue to do, but the environment that that tumor lives in and the other things that may be contributing to that tumor's survival and, and, and growth. A absolutely. So this is an old idea. It's called the seed and soil hypothesis. And for a long time, cancer biologists loved to work on the seed, the cancer. Hmm. But of course, that seed only grows in certain soils. There was a real mystery as to why, just to give you one example of how many mysteries there are, breast cancers metastasize to bones, but don't metastasize to certain other organs. Hmm. The liver gets lots of metastases, but the spleen, which is an organ of similar size, gets very, very few metastases. What is it about one organ versus another that forms the right soil for cancer? So these questions have obviously existed in biology for a long time. But because of cancer genetics, because we were so interested in the genes within the seed, the cancer cell, we focused our attention on the cancer cell. And that's helpful. This is the yin-yang quality to all of this. But it's now important to think about the soil. And it's important partly because actually when I gave the talk, I, I, I didn't realize this, but since then, among the most successful therapies in cancer are immune therapies yeah. in which you activate the immune system against the cancer. Now, if you really think about it, immune therapies are soil therapies. They are making the soil, the environment, the microenvironment that the cancer grows in, less amenable or less hospitable for the cancer cell to grow. So that's a soil therapy. What's really at stake, perhaps, here is not the medicine itself, but a metaphor. Rather than killing something, in the case of the great chronic degenerative diseases, kidney failure, diabetes, hypertension, osteoarthritis, maybe what we really need to do is change the metaphor to growing something. And that's the key, perhaps, to reframing our thinking about medicine. And it raises a series of, I think, some of the most interesting questions about how we think about medicine in the future. Could your medicine be a cell and not a pill? How would we grow these cells? Could your medicine be an organ that's created outside the body and then implanted into the body? Could that stop some of the degeneration? Could we store these organs? Would each organ have to be developed for an individual human being and put back? And perhaps most puzzlingly, could your medicine be an environment? Could you patent an environment? You know, there's been, in every culture, shamans have been using environments as medicines. Could we imagine that for our future? I've talked a lot about model building. That's what we do as scientists. You know, when an architect builds a model, he or she is trying to show you a world in miniature. But when a scientist is building a model, he or she is trying to show you the world in metaphor. He or she is trying to create a way, new way of seeing. The former is a scale shift, and the latter is a perceptual shift. Now, antibiotics created such a perceptual shift in our way of thinking about medicine that we, it really colored, distorted, very successfully, the way we've thought about medicine for the last 100 years. But we need new models to think about medicine in the future. I mean, if, if you're a researcher today 
and you're looking at um, cancer treatment, right? Are you focusing on on treatments to kill the cancer, or are you focusing on treatments to think about the environment, targeted therapies, or or, or are both happening? Uh, both are happening, and both should happen. One of the seductions of cancer genomics was to focus and perhaps refocus our attention on the seed, on the genetics of cancer. What genes are... So the question we would ask in the clinic five, ten years ago, what genes are driving this cancer cell? How can I shut those genes off? Yeah. Now we're asking somewhat different questions. We are saying, how is the cancer cell with its driving genes surviving in this host? What allows it to do that? Again, this is to emphasize that these are complementary questions. And if you were to ask me, projecting ahead, my suspicion would be that the only long-term way to think about this is to use them in this yin-yang way. On one hand, inhibit, kill, suppress the growth of the cancer. But on the other hand, allow immunology, the microenvironment uh, that the cancer grows in, to reassert its normalcy. Yeah. I mean, you, you are a, still a relatively young man in your field. And so it's pretty remarkable. It sounds like there's been an enormous change even in the way that you have thought about the work you do 20 years ago and the way you think about it today. Well, one enormous change is, for me in particular, I'm a cancer biologist. Uh, I grew up in the era of cancer genomics. My laboratory has identified certain cancer genes. Recently, I was differentiating along the pathway of, you know, find the gene, find the target, and try to identify what to do with the target. Yeah. About five years ago, my own research practice and my clinical practice took a very big change. I started thinking about nutrition. I started to think about uh, microenvironment in cancer. What about the what are the inflammatory environment? So, in in 2010, we published a paper in Nature showing that if you change the environment, you can actually change the behavior of the cancer in dramatic ways, leukemias in dramatic ways. My lab now has an, a wing that works on immune system and leukemia. You know, 10 years ago, we were all working on genes, you know, genes that cause leukemia. And we still do, hoping to find targets that will kill the cancer cells. But we've more and more started thinking, well, what about the environment that the cancer grows in? And my laboratory has undergone a complete change in these last five years. Siddhartha Mukherjee, he's a cancer biologist, physician, researcher, and author of The Emperor of All Maladies and the Gene. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about rethinking medicine. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Amica Insurance. For over 100 years, Amica has built its reputation on exceptional customer service. Today, it's a company people trust for auto, home, and life insurance. A company to recommend to friends and family looking for something different for their insurance needs. Visit meetamica.com NPR and discover why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policies stay with them. Thanks also to Stamps.com. During the holidays, it'll be busy everywhere, including at the post office. So use Stamps.com to access all the services of the post office right from your computer. You can print real U.S. postage for any letter or package, and the mail carrier picks it up. It couldn't be easier. Try Stamps.com and get a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about rethinking medicine. So what do you think is one of the biggest problems with with medicine today? We are trained, rewarded, and hired to be cowboys. And what the individual clinician says is what goes. This is Atul Gawande. We're neither trained, rewarded, or hired to be members of teams. Atul's a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. 
He's also a researcher and writer. You might have read his work in The New Yorker. And Atul says medicine's cowboy culture just isn't working. My mother had a straightforward knee replacement that she needed. Mm -hmm. It went beautifully. I hung out with her for the three days she's in the hospital. Um, And then the few days afterwards, uh, while she was in a rehab, and I'm pretty bored, everything's going well. Mm. And so I just decided to count the number of name tags that came into the room. (laughs) Someone who either made a decision about her care or physically touched her and executed on her care. And in the course of that short period of time, it was 66 different people. Wow. Eight different physical therapists, for example. And if they were not on the same page, it could be infuriating. A physical therapist comes in the morning and says, what are you doing in bed? You should be out of bed. And then the afternoon, the physical therapist, a different one comes in, and they could end up saying, what are you doing out of bed? You should be in bed. Yeah. <laughs> in a world of 66 different Clinicians, smart, great, hardworking people, having autonomy be their highest value. It's a cacophony of everybody saying, listen to me, listen to me. And you want to scream, who's in charge? But the thing is, medicine wasn't always like this. It wasn't always so complicated. There was a time when one doctor could know and do everything. Atul Gawande tells the story of how that came to be from the TED stage. I want to take you back to a time when Lewis Thomas was writing in his book, The Youngest Science. Lewis Thomas was a physician writer, one of my favorite writers, and he wrote this book at the Boston City Hospital in the pre-penicillin year of 1937. This was when the core structure of medicine was created. It was at a time when what was known, you could know. You could hold it all in your head, and you could do it all. If you had a prescription pad, a nurse, a hospital that would give you a place to convalesce, maybe some basic tools, you really could do it all. You set the fracture. You drew the blood. You spun the blood and looked at it under the microscope. You plated the culture. You injected the antiserum. This was a life as a craftsman. As a result, we built it around a culture and set of values that said what you were good at was being daring, courageous, independent, and self-sufficient. The story of medicine was one of rescue, and it was about kind of doctor as king. Yeah. And that changed and evolved as knowledge exploded. We suddenly came into a world where we had not only enumerated all the different kind of conditions that human beings could have, which now number more than 60,000 different ways our human body can fail, but we had generated thousands of drugs. And then we designed 4,000 medical and surgical procedures, and we're trying to deploy that capability town by town to every person alive and none of us can grasp the entirety of it. We have trained, hired, and rewarded people to be cowboys, but it's pit crews that we need. Pit crews for patients. There's evidence all around us. 40% of our coronary artery disease patients in our communities receive incomplete or inappropriate care. 60% of our asthma stroke patients receive incomplete or inappropriate care. Two million people come into hospitals and pick up an infection they didn't have because someone failed to follow the basic practices of hygiene. There's another sign that we need pit crews, and that's the unmanageable cost of our care. Now, we in medicine, I think, are baffled by this question of cost. We want to say, this is just the way it is. But as we've looked at the data, we found that the most expensive care is not necessarily the best care. And the best care often turns out to be the least expensive. And what that means is there's hope. When we look at the ones who are getting the best results at the lowest costs, we find 
the ones that look most like systems are the most successful. That is to say, they found ways to get all of the different components to come together into a whole. I got interested in this when the World Health Organization came to my team asking if we could help with a project to reduce deaths in surgery. The volume of surgery had spread around the world, but the safety of surgery had not. So what did you guys do? How did you, like, how did you even know where to start? Yeah, you know, so the, I became fascinated with the question of, you know, medicine is not the only field in which the knowledge and the skill has exploded in ways that have exceeded the ability of the individual, and now you're having to have teams of people come together. One example is construction, right? Yeah. You know, I visited a skyscraper construction site, and on the day I came to visit, there were 500 people on site from 60 different subcontractors. <laughs> I was like, how do they do this? It's like a patient who has 60 different specialists who are all supposedly there to help them out. Yeah. How in the world did they make this happen? The answer was that it wasn't an architect. It wasn't an engineer. It wasn't a contractor. In the middle of it was someone they called the project manager who sat in a room with the checklists of the day. Spread across the wall was a checklist. <laughs> the police had to come and shut down the road in order for these giant girders to get delivered. There had to be a receiving team. You know, the electrical people had to be told not to show up until later in the day. And it was all a system that treated it as a project with many moving parts coming together for the sake of their client. And I guess you adopted this idea, right? Yeah, so the starting place began with just saying, let's create a checklist for surgery. Part of what the checklist did was it forces you to name and prioritize what are the most critical key elements that we can miss. So we did this. We created a 19-item, two-minute checklist for surgical teams. We implemented this checklist in eight hospitals around the world, deliberately in places from rural Tanzania to the University of Washington in Seattle. We found that after they adopted it, the complication rates fell 35%. It fell in every hospital it went into. The death rates fell 47%. This was bigger than a drug. and it's been slow to spread. There's a deep resistance because using these tools forces us to confront that we're not a system, forces us to behave with a different set of values. Just using a checklist requires you to embrace different values from ones we've had, like humility, discipline, teamwork. This is the opposite of what we were built on, independence, self-sufficiency, autonomy. I met an actual cowboy, by the way. I asked him, what was it like to actually, you know, herd a thousand cattle across hundreds of miles? How did you do that? And he said, we have the cowboys stationed at distinct places all around. They communicate electronically constantly, and they have protocols and checklists for how they handle everything from <laughs> bad weather to emergencies or inoculations for the cattle. Even the cowboys are pit crews now. <laughs> and it seemed like time that we become that way ourselves. We've come to a place where we have no choice but to recognize as individualistic as we want to be, complexity requires group success. We all need to be pit crews now. So how do you actually get doctors to, to use the checklist? And, and how do you get hospitals to, you know, to kind of assimilate this idea? Yeah, so this has been the interesting part of the last five years of this work. Um, how do you deal with getting groups of people to take on the change? Yeah. And one of the most important components was connecting to people one-on-one, -on -one, talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, approaching it the way a coach really approaches people. You observe, you give feedback, and you try to connect around what are their goals and how might they achieve those goals as clinicians. 
And and I guess one of the things Yoshi did was to look into this idea of coaching and and how I guess how that can kind of take the checklist to the next level. Yes. Um, I was really struck that in sports, people had coaches. I thought that was really interesting. Like, why in sports yeah. do they think this is the way to do things? But in other lines of work, they cut you loose and then you improve on your own. <laughs> and so looking and thinking about how we make that happen, uh, it struck me that there isn't any particular reason we couldn't systematically try to create a cadre of people who offer coaching. And you tried this approach in, in India, right? Yeah, so we decided we would give it a try in childbirth. And it really ended up being about combining two of these ideas together. We had a checklist for childbirth, and we created a small army of doctors and nurses trained as coaches, deployed across 120 health facilities. And this center was one of them, because coaching helped them learn to execute on the fundamentals. This is a 23-year-old woman. Her water broke in the triage area, so they brought her directly to the labor and delivery room, and then they ran through their checks. Within four minutes, they had taken the blood pressure, measured her pulse, and also measured the heart rate of the baby. Eight minutes later, the intensity of the contractions picked up. The nurse washed her hands, put on clean gloves, examined her and found that the baby was ready to come. She then went straight over to do her next set of checks. All of the equipment, she worked her way through and made sure she had everything she needed at the bedside. And then three minutes later, one push, and that baby was out. <laughs> I was watching this delivery, and suddenly I realized that the mood in that room had changed, because that baby did not seem to be alive. She was blue and floppy and not breathing. But the nurse kept going with her checkpoints. She dried that baby with a clean towel. And after a minute, when that didn't stimulate that baby, she ran to get the baby mask, and the other one went to get the suction. And within 20 seconds, she was clearing out that little girl's airways. And she got back a green, thick liquid. And within a minute of being able to do that and suctioning out over and over, that baby started to breathe. Another minute, and that baby was crying. And five minutes after that, she was pink and warming on her mother's chest. And that mother reached out to grab that nurse's hand, and they could all breathe. I saw a team transformed because of coaching. And I saw at least one life saved because of it. The baby's name is Anshika. It means beautiful. And she is what's possible when we really understand how people get better at what they do. Thank you. Atul Gawande is a surgeon, researcher, and writer for The New Yorker. You can see both of his talks at TED.com. I know this is stating the obvious, but the, the brain is by far the most complex part of the human body, right? In a way, yes, I think so. This is Jocelyn Block. Because we do not understand completely what the brain is, how the brain is performing, and we still know that there is much to discover. Jocelyn's a neurosurgeon who's trying to rethink how we can heal the brain by helping the brain heal itself. So if you break your arm, I mean, your bone can be reconstructed. And even if the bone is not perfect, you want to have a stiff bone to make your arm hold. But if in the brain, since some of the area of the brain are responsible for function, if you lose these areas, it's difficult for the rest of the brain to take over. That's because the brain can't grow enough new cells to fully repair damaged ones. Even with advancements in technology like neural stimulation through electricity, we're still kind of limited with what we can actually do to fix the brain. But Jocelyn believes those boundaries can be pushed and pushed far. What I see with the deep brain stimulation is that it really helps for symptoms, but not, it doesn't cure a disease. So what we really would like to, to do is to not only to stimulate areas of the brain, but also to add new cells, to have more 
possibilities to stimulate and to make the the brain work. So I guess the dream you're talking about is actually not just allowing the brain to kind of improvise for the parts of the brain that were damaged, but to actually fix the damaged part of the brain. Yes. So about two decades ago, while Jocelyne was working in the emergency room, she and another colleague, Jean-Francois Brunet, started studying brain samples of head trauma patients. So Jean-Francois wanted to grow cells from the cortex. Cortex is the, the layer that is surrounding all our brain. And from these pieces of cortex, we wanted to see what kind of culture we were able to grow. And uh, so what we saw under the microscope were really looking like uh, stem cell sculpture, hmm. which was really surprising. Huh? <laughs> that was surprising. So, I mean, this is kind of a big deal, right? Because, I mean, stem cells produce more cells, right? Yeah, it was a big deal because they looked like stem cells, but they were not behaving exactly the same as stem cells. Hmm. So probably you know that stem cells renew very rapidly. And uh, they almost never die. Huh? They they divide and and divide and divide, and they are not getting old. But uh, in our cell culture, we saw that the cells were dividing uh, slower, and also after a few weeks of culture, they had the tendency to get older and eventually even die. When I say that cells are dividing all the time and never die, you always think of a tumor formation. Mm. Because that's exactly the definition of a tumor, cells that divide, divide, and that you, that you lose control of. So people are a bit scared of stem cells, to implant stem cells, knowing that they may eventually turn to tumors after a while because they never stop this division. And uh, so we were quite happy to see that we had a kind of stem cells that was more quiet and that would have a, a death after a while. And this was significant because maybe those cells could be used to regrow damaged parts of the brain. But Jocelyne and her lab partner weren't sure they needed proof. The problem was that, you know, in uh, all these uh, experiments, you cannot start with humans. So they used the closest substitute they could find. Monkeys. In a moment what happened with that experiment and how its findings could fundamentally change the way we think about our brains. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get $30 off your first meal plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash radiohour. Thanks also to GoToWebinar, the webinar platform that's hosted 2.3 million interactive web events with over 60 million views per year. GoToWebinar believes webinars are one of the best ways to interact with your prospects and customers instead of business presentations or company websites. Turn your next presentation into a conversation with GoToWebinar. For more information, visit gotowebinar.com slash podcast. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And before the break, we were hearing from neurosurgeon Jocelyne Block. About 20 years ago, she and another colleague were trying to find out if the brain could repair itself using its own cells. The idea was to try to use them to put them back in the host, in the same person that gave his own cells to, for the culture. So to test this idea, they ran an experiment comparing what happens in a healthy monkey brain with a damaged monkey brain. Jocelyne picks up the story from the TED stage. So the first question we had, what will happen if we re-implant these cells in a normal brain? 
and what will happen if we re-implant the same cells in a lesion brain. So in the first case scenario, we re-implanted the cells in the normal brain, and what we saw is that they completely disappeared after a few weeks, as if they are taken from the brain. They go back home, the space is already busy, they are not needed there, so they disappear. In the second case scenario, we performed the lesion, we re-implanted exactly the same cells, and in this case, the cells remained, and they became mature neurons. But we could not stop here, of course. Do these cells also help a monkey to recover after a lesion? So for that, we trained monkeys to perform a manual dexterity task. They had to retrieve food pellets from a tray. So that was the first step. You had them retrieve food from a tray. You just taught them how to do that. Exactly. Okay. And they got food pretty good at it. Food pellets from a tray. They were really good, so yeah. it's a task that you can ask monkeys to do, and they're really, after a while, when they get used to do it, they're really good and, uh, at it, and they can make it fast. And when they had reached a plateau of performance, we did a lesion in the motor cortex corresponding to the hand motion. So the monkeys were plegic. They could not move their hand anymore. And exactly the same as humans would do, they spontaneously recovered to a certain extent, exactly the same after a stroke. Patients are completely plegic, and then they try to recover due to brain spasticity mechanism. They recover to a certain extent, exactly the same for the monkey. Okay, so essentially, after the lesion, where you, you deliberately damaged the monkey's brain to kind of simulate what a stroke would be like, you guys were just watching the monkeys, just observing them, because you knew they could recover some of their ability to use their hands to retrieve the food pellets, right? Exactly. But you also knew that it was unlikely that the monkey would be able to do it as well as it did before the lesion, right? Yeah, they did. But that's a, what we kind of model that we know, because we've been working on this kind of lesions for years in the lab where we work. So we knew that they would recover to a certain extent. And generally, it's about 30 to 50% of the previous uh, function when everything was normal. So at this point, the monkey is, he's able to grab the food, but slowly. Exactly. So when we were sure that the monkey has reached his plateau of spontaneous recovery, we implanted his own cells. So on the left side, you see the monkey that has spontaneously recovered. So he's about 40 to 50% of his previous performance before the lesion. He's not so accurate, not so quick. And look now when we re-implant the cells. Two months after re-implantation, the same individual. And what happened? Did it, what, what was going on in, in that monkey's brain? So we observed that after the re-implantation, the monkey starts to improve. So the way he retrieved these food pellets in the tray is becoming more accurate and faster. It was for us also a very exciting result, I tell you. So essentially, without doing anything, we know that the brain is going to recover probably to a certain extent. But after you implanted the monkey's own cells back into the monkey's brain, it recovered even further. I mean, you can see, I mean, you showed this video on stage. You can see it. Correct, exactly. I mean, it's, so it's, it's pretty it's, surprising. It, it's incredible. And what is also very incredible is that we do not do much. Actually, we leave the cells go wherever they want. We do not guide them. We do, so they are clever enough to participate to this recovery. Uh, without any help from us. I mean, the brain itself is giving them the role they need to play to help the individual to recover. I mean, of course, the implications of this are enormous because if we could figure out how to do this in humans who suffer from strokes or have other neurological disorders, it could completely change the way our brains are treated by medicine. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> but the problem is to have the possibility to do it. And that's the problem we face. It's an incredible weapon we may have to cure ourselves, you know, and or, but it's uh, until 
we try it. It's hard to say if it's going to work in humans who have large lesions, for example, you know, mm. because we've been working with monkeys that have a very restricted lesion of the brain. We've showed that they improved, but in humans, sometimes people have larger lesions and will it be also enough to bring a few cells surrounding a lesions in these patients? This we don't know. But I think that it's a kind of new personalized medicine. Um, so now, is it going to work in everybody the way we would love to? <laughs> Maybe not, but I think it's the way the medicine is going to, to evolve. Jocelyn Block is a neurosurgeon at Lausanne University Hospital in Lausanne, Switzerland. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about rethinking medicine. Long before Joseph Ravenel became a doctor, when he was just a kid in New Jersey, his interest in medicine actually started at a place you'd least expect. Some of the earliest memories that I have are of my father taking me to his barbershop. The barbershop where lots of men in his mainly African-American community would get together. The camaraderie that I saw, just the letting down of their guard, the banter back and forth, the laughter, the array of conversations they would have, you can imagine for a five or six-year-old boy, was just incredibly eye-opening and, frankly, entertaining. <laughs> they would talk about politics, about sports and movies, but they would also talk about something much more personal. A common topic was health, and in particular, what the men were being told by their doctors. And you know, it wasn't uncommon for me to hear, can you believe what my doctor told me to do? <laughs> um, and conversations uh, like that. Joseph picks up the story from the TED stage. The men often recounted their doctor's recommendations to cut salt in their diet or to eat less fried foods or to stop smoking, or to reduce stress. They talked about the different ways you could reduce stress, like simplifying one's love life. <laughs> All ways to treat high blood pressure. There's a lot of talk about high blood pressure in the barbershop. That's because almost 40% of black men have it. That means that almost every single black man either has high blood pressure or knows a black man who has it. Sometimes, those conversations in the barbershop would be about what happens when high blood pressure is not adequately addressed. Say, did you hear about Jimmy? He had a stroke. Did you hear about Eddie? He died last week. Massive heart attack. He was 50. Joseph would watch these men tell their barbers things they wouldn't even tell their own doctors. So when he got older and decided himself to become a doctor, one of the first research projects Joseph did at med school was to visit barbershops and find out why. So many of the men that we talked to had previous uh, experiences with doctors who often did not look like them who were not familiar with their experiences. So often the men felt like there was something that was being lost in translation. Mm -hmm. And there was this sentiment that the doctor was just trying to get through the visit as quickly as possible rather than actually hearing the men and their deepest concerns. Mm -hmm. So certainly the issue of trust comes into play. And if there is a topic that you perceive to be embarrassing, yeah. you know, if you don't trust your provider at the outset, there's almost no chance that you're going to volunteer to talk about those symptoms. But, but they would tell their barbers this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, this idea of there being uh, kind of a sacred and confidential uh, relationship between barbers and their customers in some ways uh, mirrors the doctor-patient relationship. And sometimes a recommendation from a barber to get a health screening 
can potentially go much farther than a recommendation from a healthcare provider based largely on the trust that many men place in their barbers. This is Denny Moe, owner of Denny Moe's Superstar Barbershop in Harlem. I've been lucky enough to have Denny as my barber for the last eight years. He said to me once, hey doc, you know, lots of black men trust their barbers more than they trust their doctors. This was stunning to me at first, but not so much when you think about it. Black men have been with their current barbers on average as long as I've been with Denny, about eight years. And black men see their barbers about every two weeks. Not only do you trust your barber with your look and with your style, but you also trust him with your secrets and sometimes your life. Denny, like many barbers, is more than just an artist, a businessman, and confidant. He's a leader and a passionate advocate for the well-being of his community. The very first time I walked into Denny Moe's shop, he wasn't just cutting hair. He was also orchestrating a voter registration drive to give a voice to his customers and his community. With this kind of activism and community investment that typifies the black barbershop, of course, the barbershop is a perfect place to talk about high blood pressure and other health concerns in the community. When you're in a barbershop, you're in your territory, and you're among friends who share your history, your struggle, and your health risks. This is probably like something that, you know, most people in the African-American community have known forever, that a barbershop is where, you know, you're really going to find out what's going on and what people are thinking. But when did it sort of become, you know, a way to really think about public health and improve public health? So barbershops have been an important institution in the African-American community going all the way back to uh, slavery. Barbers have been key opinion leaders. And back in the uh, Renaissance days, barbers were known as barber surgeons. Um, yeah. And you would go to the barbershop not only for hair services, but also for certain surgeries. Mm-hmm. And so this legacy, we believe, is one of the reasons that at barber colleges today, Health is actually a very important part of the curriculum. And we also think it's why when we approached barbers with this idea of bringing healthcare into their barbershops, you know, it really was not a terribly radical idea for them. Okay, so to clarify, you actually tried this out in real-life barbershops. Yes. So in a very rigorous randomized trial, we actually studied 18 barbershops. Half of them were randomly assigned to an intervention where we taught barbers how to measure blood pressure and how to counsel their customers to go to the doctor if their blood pressure was high. And we compared that to a group of shops who just got what we call usual care, which in a barbershop is basically educational pamphlets. And we followed all 18 shops for a period of one year. And what we found was in the shops where the barbers were measuring blood pressure and counseling their customers, the proportion of people with high blood pressure who were actually controlled was significantly higher compared to the men who were in shops that were just getting the educational pamphlets. And so we actually do have statistically significant data that barbershops can be an effective avenue for addressing a very serious health concern in black men. I mean, you could imagine, like, if we're thinking about just radically different ways of treating patients or thinking of medical care, that, you know, one day you may have an integrated barbershop and medical center, like in the same place or like a doctor on call. You know, uh, one of my dreams uh, is exactly what you said, to essentially have a clinic that can, in some ways, minister to the many needs that black men have. You know, if we just focus on health care, you know, that really is a small 
percentage of all the things that go into people's health. The majority of what goes into people's health, right, is what happens the 99% that they're not in the doctor's office, right? It's when they're at home or when they're out in their uh, communities. And so to the extent that we can figure out how we can align health with those other places, you know, we have a much better chance of really improving people's health in a holistic way. That's Dr. Joseph Ravenel. He's an associate professor at NYU School of Medicine. By the way, he also goes to dozens of barbershops where he does screenings for blood pressure and cancer. You can see his full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, Rethinking Medicine, this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. And you can listen to this show anytime by subscribing to our podcast. You can do it now on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Benjamin Klempe. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. Also, you can write directly to us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org, and you can tweet us. It's at TEDRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Stacey Vanek Smith. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And we are here with a new show. The Indicator from Planet Money. On every show, we take some number in the news and we dive into it to find the big idea behind it. Get it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. 